Chelsea, Liverpool and Man City struggling. The title race heats up in La Liga and it's derby weekend in the Premier League. I'm Dan Burke, this is the One Football Podcast and I'm joined today by Matt Froelich. Good afternoon. And Joel Sanderson-Murray. Hello. Naked from the waist down, Joel, today? Or did you uh, did you put some clothes on your lower half? Eh, no comments on that, so I don't want to give the, <laughs> the listeners and the viewers any kind of idea. Fair enough, fair enough. And uh, and you're you're in the office today, Matt, so you're definitely fully clothed. I think it would be a disciplinary matter if you weren't, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm fully clothed, back on the podcast. I thought, what would be an amusing way to announce my return to the podcast after one week? And I thought it'd be with some sort of funny official announcement about me leaving the podcast for six weeks to go on Love Island. But unfortunately, that's <laughs> not the truth. Um, oh, did you, I'll leave did you that, not make the I'll, cut? I'll leave that... Yeah, I'll leave that down to these sort of weird semi-professional footballers who seem to think that financially going on Love Island represents a better opportunity than going on than playing football. Yeah, you could have a, a short-lived uh, media career afterwards, I guess, uh, which is probably probably pays better than playing for Macclesfield Town, doesn't it? Yeah, that that yeah. By the way, that's not completely random to anyone listening. That was one of the strikers from Macclesfield Town, and I realised. It's Macclesfield FC. Like it, the Macclesfield obviously got wound up mm. a few years ago, um, and now it's Macclesfield FC. And I think Robbie Savage is on the board. Yes, yeah. So I don't know what he's got to say about potential Love Islander. I think it's probably his idea. Parties, but there you go. <laughs> I feel like Robbie <laughs> yeah, Savage probably. will be all over I'm that. I was thinking yeah. that the club, the club would probably like as long as he doesn't disgrace himself. They'd they'd probably be happy for a bit of PR because you know they're a Phoenix club and. You know, trying to trying to get more people down support the cause so who knows it's just such a weird niche section of british culture to be like ah oh, i'm going away on a tv show for a few weeks can't play football like I just, <laughs> it's just bizarre it's absolutely bizarre i think you'd do well on love island matt i think you should consider it <laughs> did you apply for love island this year joel <laughs> um no but I've, i did have my um my mates put me up for uh, that first dates on channel four a couple of years back so uh still waiting for feedback on that <laughs> must have got lost in the post yeah yeah that's my fault yeah. along with my hogwarts letter <laughs> and uh happy birthday for the other day matt you are you are now in the uh over 30s category how does it feel yeah i know i i don't feel it just yet but i guess when contract talks come around and i'm only getting offered <laughs> one year deals um then i'll know that i'm officially reached that age in my football mm. team, there's a separate over 30s team. So, um, and everyone was like, well, you can play for them now. I was like, oh, God, no. <laughs> don't make me feel that old. <laughs> it's don't when you start creaking when you get out of bed that it's time to worry, I find. But uh, yeah, you, you're all right, you're all right for a few years. I'm not even kidding. We played a football match last night. And this morning, I was like, God, I'm stiff. I feel like the Tin Man. But yeah, I think <laughs> that was more to do with just <laughs> my overall levels of fitness as opposed to turning 30 the day before. Yeah. Anyway, enough waffle because we've got loads to talk about today from the world of football. Just a reminder before we get stuck into it that if you want to get in touch with the podcast, the email address to do so is podcast.onefootball.com. Uh, we've got a question coming up later in the show. Um, we didn't do a podcast earlier this week. We're a bit short-staffed, so um, we've got quite a lot of bases to cover this week. And we're actually going to go right back to last weekend with the FA Cup. And we're going to start with a match that took place on Sunday with Man City uh, beating Chelsea 4-0. Uh, Chelsea, really, really poor here, I thought. Um, you know, City played them the previous Thursday. They weren't too bad in that game. It was a close game, but they were dreadful in this game. It was um, it was like City were playing a lower league team at times. Uh, quite worrying from Chelsea's point of view, I thought. Is it too early for a serious inquest into into Graham Potter and what he's doing there at Chelsea? Do you think, Joel? They they were poor, weren't they? Um, it kind of like felt like traits away from from the first whistle that the result was almost inevitable, and Chelsea had kind of not not thrown it in, but. It, it would have taken a, a momentous effort for them to get anything, you know, to to force even you know, a replay from that game. Um, it, it kind of felt like the supporters, the, the manager, the players, they kind of accepted their face uh, you know, from the very first game of kicking the ball. And in terms of talking about sort of Poster's future, which is you know, coming to scrutiny now, um, maybe it is a bit too soon. But the fingers with Chelsea in the past, they've been a second club, uh, and managers don't tend to. Yeah, survived this kind of running form, which is, you know, what's well, the two wins in the last 10 games we're looking at now. Um, usually when that happens, the managers tend to go very quickly and that's something that's worked for them. And obviously, they're under new ownership now. They've, you know, got Todd Bowley in and, and they're 
you know, the plans do something a little bit more different in terms of how they structure things. And um, all the talk when Potter come in was this is going to be a long term project. He's going to get time to build the identity up of the club and and to take it down sort of a new path. Um, and it's, it's going to be a real test of their resolve and how much they want to stick to that because right now the performances and results are, aren't good enough and it wouldn't be a complete sort of surprise, shock or, or even, you know, it wouldn't be completely unjustified if um, Chelsea decides to sack Graham Potter at the moment to so the 10th in the league and they, they, they look way far out in terms of getting, you know, finishing the top four. So if that does happen, then, you know, I, I wouldn't be completely surprised and I, and I think it's, if, if results don't pick up, they lose to Fulham in their next game, you, you know, they go to the weekend and don't perform well. I think you could be looking at Potter losing his job, yeah. Mm. My worry for Potter is that maybe he's a bit too nice. Maybe he doesn't quite have the personality for the the cutthroat business of the, the the very top level of the game. Very good coach, very good ideas, but you know maybe maybe his personality isn't quite right. Doesn't quite fit. But do you think Matt that Todd uh, that Todd Bowley and Chelsea's ownership uh, group understand that this is going to take some time? That they're not going to make a, an immediate reaction like maybe Roman Abramovich would have done, and maybe. They understood when they hired Potter that this season was always going to be a bit of a write-off. Um, well, uh, writing off the season when they was hired is a bit ridiculous because it was what beginning of September, mm. I believe. There's only been uh, only been a couple of games, so that would have been a bit mad to write off sort of thirty-four games. Um, I think they did understand. At least I'm hoping they do because it was a five-year contract given to Potter. That in in Roman Abramovich terms is completely unheard of for mm. Chelsea over the last twenty years. So that would suggest that Bowley was like, right, I know how Bramovich did it before. I know there was kind of loads of sackings. I know there was, you know, a new manager every couple of years. I'm going to do things different. It's just whether he has the the balls, I guess, to, to stick by his original decision. I think there's going to be a learning curve for Todd Bowley in this when he realises how much it means when you miss out on the Champions League, not only financially, but in terms of which players you can then attract, how much it means to finish in the Champions League and then, you know, the riches that come with it, how much it means to make it through certain cup competitions, uh, through to the knockout stages and stuff like that. I I really think there's going to be a learning curve and going with the hiring and firing policy isn't going to do him any good in the long run. Um Purely because I think as well that Chelsea have the financial power. We've seen it. They've got the spending power. They just need the identity and the team to be built up. Jurgen Klopp wasn't brilliant straight away at Liverpool. Pep Guardiola was at Manchester City, although he didn't win title in his first year. I think those two are the blueprint that you need a bit of time as well as the money for success. Chelsea have got the money. Uh, There's just nothing you can really do about the time. Um, You know, everyone's got the same 24 hours in the day. And um, he, you could, uh, there's not really much else that he could do, I guess. So I, I think he's got to stick with him because otherwise he'll just be constantly, constantly going back and restarting new projects. And that doesn't, that doesn't really help anyone. So for now, I mean, unless they're getting relegated, I, I can see, I can see Potter staying. Yeah, I think they might be safe from relegation, but uh, yeah, you never know. They are uh, yeah. mid-table. You can get dragged yeah. in quite quickly if you're not careful. Uh, they have uh, they, they've they've moved in the transfer market this week. Joel signing Joe Felix from uh, Atletico Madrid on loan for the rest of the season. What was it? Eleven million euros they paid for him for a loan deal, which is uh, pretty crazy money. But who knows whether that's going to work out? I mean, I'm, I'm watching them against City on on uh, at the weekend. The last thing I thought that they needed was a kind of diminutive almost flaky player who who can blow hot and cold and, you know, isn't a guaranteed source of goals is is quite similar to the kind of the players they've already got. Can you see that transfer working out for them or is it a bit of a bizarre move? Do you think it's a, perhaps a little strange um, for, for both parties, actually? I think with, with, with Chelsea, they, you know, they tried to play Kai Havertz as a number nine, uh, you know, the last couple of games, you know, maybe for a little while now and, and that's, he's not really... The outright number nine, in all sense of word, we compare him to sort of a, you know, Aaron Holland. Um, he's not that kind of striker, is he? He's more of a, a false nine. And I think, you know, if Felix comes in, he's going to be sort of a, not, you know, he's definitely not like the same player as Havertz is, but he's not too far dissimilar in terms of, you know, he's a kind of 10, he's a kind of not really a nine as well. And then it kind of feel like maybe those two, if they start playing up front together, they're going to get each other's way. And, I, I kind of felt if Chelsea were going to move for a forward this window, it would need to be someone who's 
going to be that sort of vocal points kind of shaker, um, and and they haven't done that so far. Well, you know, they bring the lad in from mould, um, uh, David Fafano, who's maybe one eye on the future when it comes to that kind of that kind of signing. So I don't think he's necessarily going to be starting every game right now. So it's it, it kind of shakes to me with what Chelsea have done so far in in, in their business overall, and and definitely comes uh, comes through with the Felix signing is. It, they've just gone for players that are sort of available and they are inverted okay, quote marks, sexy names kind of thing and gone for it and you know, throwing <laughs> yeah. a lot of shit at the wall and hoping, hoping, hoping something sticks. And um, I think that is going to be the case for Felix. And lo- looking at Chelsea's uh, history with buying forwards compared to a lot of other Premier League clubs, I think it's fair to say it, you know, it's it's not out the realms possible to say it might not work when you look at, you know, they've gone for Falcao, Pato in the in the past and, and look how those chances are Bemiang and look how they've gone out. And I, I feel like I get the vibe so far that that's the kind of um, the same kind of uh, sign and that it, you know he's going to go back to Atletico with his uh, tail between his legs in the summer and, and not really done much to to impress in England. Sadly, I mean he's a good player, but I don't think it's going to work out. Sadly. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to uh, Phil Costa, our colleague yesterday, and he predicted, predicted two goals and two assists for Felix before he uh, he goes back to Atletico Madrid. I, I'd be quite surprised if he got that many. To be fair, that's not a bad return from uh, what I'm expecting. But uh, I don't know. Maybe he will um, he will blossom now he's been released from the shackles of playing for Diego Simeone, where you know perhaps different roles expect something. Maybe Potter has a good plan for him. But do you think Matt that Chelsea's board have a clear plan for kind of what they want to do in terms of transfer targets, or is it a bit scattergun? Yeah, it is a little bit odd. I mean, I think you've we've seen them sign a few younger players. They seem to be going ahead and replacing um, and replacing some of the older lot. You got Barry Chile is also coming in this transfer window. Um, they've let go of the likes of uh, Marcus Alonso and Aspilicueta in the summer. Obviously, Fofana came in as well. Like it's big money, but they're buying for the future. If they get this Enzo Fernandez deal over the line, um, you know, I think he's ten years younger than Jorginho. Um, and N'Golo Kante. So there's definitely some sort of idea there. This Jal Felix one, like Joel said, is a bit, it's a bit like a star-studded signing that's outside of the policy, if you if you get mm. what I mean, because he could be absolutely brilliant. And I think it's not a massive gamble financially, like 11 million is nothing for them, right, for half a season. Uh, but I, I think there is a bit of a plan, I would hope, in terms of backing Potter with players that he identifies. I don't know how much of a say he's had in these signings. It's definitely, definitely a calibre of player that Potter hasn't worked with before uh, um, in, in Jao Felix. Who knows? Maybe there is some sort of idea behind it. I was talking about it um, yesterday in one of our videos, and it is very different, but potentially we could see a return to the sort of Brighton Potter that we've seen in the last few years that, have forward players without funneling everything through one striker. The goals have been shared throughout Brighton's team. Lalana, Pascal Gross, uh, Trossard, Morpai, uh, Danny Welbeck even. None of them were central strikers, number nines, that everything works towards getting these guys in the middle of the box. Brighton never played like that. I mean, we spoke about it on the podcast the last couple of years. Brighton were always that team that were great, but just couldn't score. Mm. Like they would just, but, but now, I don't know. There's just an idea Potter could play the same system at Chelsea where he has three forwards in Sterling, um, Pulisic, Havertz, Felix, Ziyech, none of whom are a number nine. Like that's just not, that's just not who he's playing for. And it could work. You know, Sterling bagged so many goals from being just a forward player rather than number nine at City. Ziyech played that role at Ajax without a number nine you know, alongside them, whether it was Tadic or Van der Beek. Um, and Potter, like I mentioned, has played without a traditional high-scoring number nine. So from that sense, it might work. But yeah, I'd probably be a slightly more inclined to go along with you and Phil Costa and say maybe <laughs> there's not too many. But if so, then that shows real faith in the board from being like, right, Graham, we're going to have to believe you here because we've given you a five-year deal. So we might as well, yeah, we might as well back you in it. Yeah, they have got one sort of, well, I don't know if you would call him a genuine number nine because he, he sometimes plays out wide as well in uh, in Aubameyang there. Uh, his situation, very strange at, at Chelsea's time at Time Chelsea has not gone well at all. Um, he was he was brought on as a sub against City at the weekend, taken off in between that time. I didn't even notice he was playing, to be honest with you. Um, 
do you feel a bit sorry for him, Joel? I mean, he was he was brought in by Thomas Tuchel just days before Tuchel was sacked, and it just kind of hasn't gone to plan. He's apparently desperate to get back to Barcelona. Is is his career finished, or is it just a, a victim of circumstance at Chelsea? I do feel you know some sympathy for him because I think you know, Tuchel obviously worked him at Borussia Dortmund and and knew how to sort of get the best out of him and. Chelsea fans never really got got a chance to see that because, like you said, their tuckle goes not too long after Aubameyang joins, and um, we, we you know no we've seen how that would have played out, and, and maybe it would be a different story altogether. But um, so yeah, a, li- a little sorry for him there, but um, I don't think he should be desperate to get back to Barcelona to be honest, because I don't think he's gonna get many more minutes there either. You know, they've got a you know, Barcelona obviously out of Champions League uh, already, but you know top of La league and look really good to you know be there or thereabouts in the, the season and they're doing that with you know Lewandowski and Dembele sort of playing week in, week out and then Fassi and Rafinha aren't really getting, you know, completely playing ninety minutes every week. So I don't really know where Aubameyang fits into there. That that would feel like a, a weird signing for both club and player. So um I'm not quite sure what Pierre Emmerich's next step is, to be honest with you. And at, at the moment <laughs> it feels like it's a a career that's starting to fuzzle out a little bit, doesn't it? Mm. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, another uh, All-Premier League tie in the FA Cup last weekend took place at Anfield. It finished Liverpool 2, Wolves 2. Wolves very nearly winning the game right at the death, uh, being denied a a winning goal in controversial fashion. Uh, One of Liverpool's goals in this game was was quite controversial as well, Uh, Mohamed Salah's uh, goal. I mean, it's controversial in, in as much as uh, that rule is a load of nonsense, isn't it, Matt? Basically, he, he was the, the beneficiary of a, uh, a defender heading the ball back towards his goalkeeper. Salah was in an offside position, but then automatically makes him back onside. That is That rule has to change, doesn't it, surely? Yeah, well, technically, wasn't he the intended recipient of the pass in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of an odd rule. I feel like there was... I feel like Spurs had a goal ruled out this season... Because they did, because Kane was the intended recipient of a pass, despite the fact it then touched someone else. So, yeah, that's a really grey area. When I saw it, I definitely thought, like, oh, he's offside. And then the fact that um, the defender touches it. Yeah, that's that's very hard. When you combine it with the fact Wolves also had the goal disallowed at the end, <laughs> that is, that's a double sucker punch for them. I'd, I'd be absolutely gutted for them. Maybe, maybe even robbed of a famous victory <laughs> at Anfield. I'm not sure how maybe our so, half-naked yeah. friend sees it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? What? Did you? Could you explain what happened on that uh, that disallowed Wolves goal, Joel? No, and I don't think the referee or VAR can even explain what happened there. I mean, the the Athletic did a piece on it a couple of days later and said that the the referee and VAR had seventeen camera angles available to them, and uh, none of them could show that Nunez wasn't offside because you know part, the, what the the source of the offside was was. When uh, I think it's Juan uh, gets the gets ahead on the ball, the ball goes back down. Nunez, uh, Matias Nunez, who took the corner, comes back onto it, and apparently he was offside when Juan um, uh, gets the touch on the ball first. But every every you know you got pictures from the fans in the stadium. We took took a photo of the exact time where the the, the touch on the ball comes in, and Nunez is clearly offside, uh, clearly onside, should I say? Um, so I'm not quite sure what yeah. they, what they've seen with that. And and to be honest with you, I didn't want to get, I don't want to put myself through 90 more minutes of watching Liverpool play football at the moment. So <laughs> I was fuming that a goal got rolled out <laughs> as well. <laughs> Yeah, well, you were saying before we started recording that you're not looking forward to the uh, the Brighton away game this weekend. What's uh, what's eating Liverpool at the moment, and can you see a way out of the the current malaise anytime soon? They're in a rust. They're in a they're in a really big rust, and um, I'm not quite sure how they get out of it. Right, you know, towards the end of the, uh, this season, should I say actually? Because you know, this has been something that's been boiling over for since the first ball was kicked against Fulham. Yeah, where you know Jurgen Klopp is asking them to do something, uh, to the players to do something, and they don't look physically like they can do it anymore, especially the midfield. Um, you know, he's chopped and changed it in terms of personnel when they've had you know, players available, and he's tried different systems, and nothing seems to be working. And in terms of you know, opposition just seems to be able to walk through our midfield and, and be able to attack our goal very quickly at the moment. And then um, now that's that's happened over and over. You, you're given every Every team you play every weekend, 
encouragement and also the base in terms of they think they can get results over Liverpool at the moment. And um, and it's you know there's a lot of fans um, that you know want them you know Liverpool to sign midfielder, which I think is absolutely necessary. Never mind just signing one; they need to sign two or three come the summer, but definitely at least one now. But the thing is. I don't even think that would would completely solve the situation right now. Just just getting a new name in, uh, for one reason in terms of you know let, let's say Liverpool sign you know Casiedo from Brighton, which is the strongest link for for this January. You know whoever they bring in would need you know six months to sort of accommodate and adapt to what. Jurgen Klopp wants them to do. You know when Liverpool signed Fabinho a couple of seasons ago, he. he didn't end up playing consistently till December, January, and he signed in the summer. So it's that that's that's a tricky one. You know, you, you can't expect someone to sign tomorrow and be able to fit in straight away and, and play his best games. Um, so yeah, I don't know how to get out of this malaise, as you very calmly put it uh, right now, because it, it, <laughs> they they tried things doesn't seem to be working, and I, and I don't know what the way out is at the moment, so, unless you know. Darwin Nunez and Mohamed Salah, you know, score hat tricks every game, and you just score your way out of it. I, I don't think that looks like happening. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm banging my head against the wall. I'm pretty sure everyone at Anfield and Kirby is doing the same. <laughs> that was a uh, a fantastic goal from Nunez in this game, though, wasn't it, Matt? Uh, oh, fantastic! I absolutely lovely. <laughs> I think a really uh, a really composed, real calm finish. Sorry, I was I was a million miles away. That was Nunez goal, but I just remembered. Uh, yeah, it was it was brilliant. It was it was possibly the least erratic thing he's done as a Liverpool player. So, <laughs> has, has he been fun to watch this season, Joel, finished, or have you been nice. tearing your hair out watching him? He's, he's been fun. I think that's the, the one word you can use to describe him. Um, he, you know, he's <laughs> he's absolutely chaos, isn't he? Like he, he is great, and he's probably been the one shining light of the whole season, to be honest. Because I, I'm not sure he's intending to do so, but he's just involved in nearly every minute of every game, isn't he? You know, I'm quite sure what he's going to do, and I'm pretty sure the opposition don't know that either, so um, that certainly helps, and, and he is fun. Um, he's very raw. I mean, he's only played three seasons of football in, in Europe up until this season, so, um, you know, he's, he's still got a lot to learn, but I think with, with, with Darwin, he certainly isn't Liverpool's problem, and I think he's shown that, you know, once he, he does pick things up and he does learn and, and hopefully that does happen and you know it could be a linear progress then um, I think he's going to be an incredible signing for the club yeah has that lad on TikTok um, run out of Darwin Nunez songs yet and has he pivoted fully into Cody Kakbo now <laughs> no he's, he's he's still doing bits he's um, Sky Sports News have arranged for him to, uh, to meet Darwin as well which I feel you know quite scared for Darwin's safety when that happens <laughs> oh my god that is going to be absolute gold, isn't it? TV gold. <laughs> uh, there was a fair bit of gold in the FA Cup this weekend, actually. It was uh, a, a decent weekend if uh, if giant killings are your thing. And let's face it, whose thing are they not? Uh, Wrexham beating Coventry, Stevenage beating Aston Villa, even Sheffield Wednesday beating Newcastle. Which was your, your favourite of those matches, would you say, Matt? Uh, yeah, the Sheffield Wednesday one, beating Newcastle. That mm. was amazing. I think it was considering how good Newcastle have been in the league, right? And you know, talks of top four, this, that, and the other. I just, it's just quite amusing that Sheffield Wednesday would knock them out of the cup. It's like, what was it one year ago that they lost to Cambridge in the FA Cup in the same round? Um, you know, there was all that hype about the new owners. The takeover just happened. Mm-hmm. They just signed Kieran Trippier, blah blah blah. Then Cambridge went to St James's Park and won one nil. So it's just this sort of weird curse, especially for a club who haven't won a major trophy since the 50s, I think, or maybe the, the yeah. 70s they won an FA Cup. Um, so, so yeah, just, it's quite amusing. But uh, they're still a brilliant team and I still think they're going to do well in the Premier League. But that is that is a massive a massive shot from Sheffield Wednesday. And also good on Stevenage beating Aston Villa because when there's a double strike late on, right, two goals yeah. in the last few minutes, that's just, that is FA Cup gold. And, the, yeah, the, it was really... That was a big bump back down to earth for Unai Emery, definitely. Yeah. Aston Villa have lost eight consecutive matches in the FA Cup, which means they've been knocked out in the third round in eight consecutive years now, which is uh, which is pretty mad. You think at what? least one year it sort of would have just oh, you know, gone, gone right for them. Yeah, it really is, yeah. 
And uh, yeah, Wrexham beating Coventry. I mean, Coventry, I, I don't think we would uh, we would call them a giant necessarily, certainly not in their current guise, but a non-league team knocking a championship side out of the uh, out of the FA Cup is, is pretty magical. Are you, are you on board with the Wrexham story, Joel? Have you watched the documentary? Have you got a Ryan Reynolds t-shirt and all that jazz? <laughs> um, I certainly will be ordering one, uh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, or um, I'll, I'll get some Paul Mullen pyjamas, I think, now as well, because he's now my favourite um, footballer to uh, hang my hat on. Um, that, that's still a cracking story, that. I mean, you know, Coventry in the Championship, you know, it's still, what, what two, three leagues, two leagues between them. So it's, you know, Coventry doing quite well up there at the moment this season, um, you know, on the outskirts of the playoffs. That's, that's a cracking result for Wrexham, man. And then, you know, they've got, you know, history in the FA Cup as well in terms of beating Arsenal. And I think it was 72 73. So um, it's, it's always nice when, you know, teams of history and the competition go on and um, come back and, and do it again. And that was lovely to see. And the, the scenes of the fans at the end and, and doing, you know, all the uh, crazy theatrics. Love all that. That's what the FA Cup's all yeah. about. Indeed, yeah, yeah. And uh, Nottingham Forest flew to Blackpool and got hammered, which which sounds like a fun weekend, but uh, I don't think it was from their point of view. Uh, not not great for the carbon footprint either. So uh, yeah, perhaps uh, justice was done there. The football gods were smiling down on on the seaside that day. <laughs> Let's uh, let's talk a bit of La Liga now because you were saying last week, Matt, that you were really hoping for a good title race in uh, in La Liga this season. And Real Madrid losing to Villarreal at the weekend, combined with Barcelona's win over Atletico, suggests we've definitely got a title race on our hands, haven't we? Yeah, oh, absolutely delighted. I love love a bit of a title race. Um, that's not to say I'm more for Barca or Real Madrid or anything like that. Long gone are those Messi, Ronaldo, Real, Barca days. Um, yeah, I just think it's just a little bit more exciting. The, the funny thing is it's come at the expense of the third best team in La Liga usually being beaten, like in Atletico mm-hmm. Madrid. It's just just to let everybody know that it is still the original two and there'll be no surprise of this season. Um, but I think it could be a really interesting one. I always felt like both of them were going through a little bit of a transition. Um, certainly Real Madrid in the last few years have, have lost both centre-backs in Varane and Ramos and obviously sold Casemiro at the beginning of the season. So there was always the potential that maybe there would be a few points throughout the campaign where they weren't necessarily the Real Madrid of old. And obviously, Barcelona's uh, transition and changes have been well documented. Mm. So I do think it would be rather interesting. Off the top of my head, I don't know when the Classico is. Um, And it always turns up a bit of a surprise result. But given how kind of easy it's been in the last couple of years for, for Real Madrid to, to win the title. Obviously, Atletico won it a year before, and but Barca haven't won it in four years. There's definitely going to be more riding on it towards the end of the season. Um, and it might be interesting to see what happens without any uh, European football if Barcelona do lose. They've got Man United in the Europa League. Um, this is obviously pretty much uncharted territory. Um, for them to be stuck with a Thursday-Sunday schedule if they get through and to have no European football whatsoever might also be rather interesting. So that's me assuming that Real Madrid will get past Liverpool, which I think at the minute may be a bit of a given. Sorry, Joel. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it, it could be really interesting towards the end of the season. So I'm excited to see how it goes. Obviously, they've through to the final of the Spanish Super Cup as well. So maybe that'll play um, play into their hands a little bit. Uh, I think Real Madrid won it last year against Barcelona, the Super Cup. Might have been 3-2 in the final, I believe. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's definitely interesting. We've we've got a title race. I got what I wanted. So, yeah. very exciting. High Liga, as they say in Spain. Uh, and it's the, the Classico is, is in March, so we've got a little way to go for that. Yeah, a couple of ah. months. But, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that uh, defeat to Villarreal, pretty shocking one from Real Madrid's point of view, Joel. Um they fielded a team for the first time uh, in their history in this game with no Spanish players in it. Um, is it fair to say they're in a, they're in a little bit of a slump at the moment compared to the heights that we've seen from them in, in recent years? Yeah, I think I might allude to it. It is a bit of a transitional season for them where, you know, the the, the midfields, you know, has lost Casemiro and then Luka Modric is, is still on form, but Tony Cross has kind of, been in and out in terms of his form. He, he was like, he still had really good games, but he's proven he can still do it. And then sometimes the, the games pass him by. Um, and obviously, you know, they're bringing two of many. Camavinga comes in, you know, last season. He's he was starting to get sort of a few more minutes. So it's it's all a bit sort of to try and move on to that to that next phase. And one issue they they have had, which has gone under the radar a little bit, is. Uh, Karim Benzema 
you know, when he has played, he, he's still scoring goals, but he's been in and out in terms of injury and he, he's not been a man to stay fit, you know, completely. And, and hopefully for their, their sake, well, actually, hopefully that's not for their sake, um, he managed to stay fit for the rest of the season because obviously they are a complete team when Benzema does play. Um, but yeah, it, it's a weird one. And I think I think the, the thing that would scare Ancelotti and should scare Real Madrid fans more than anything else from that Villarreal game is, you know, that ends 2-1, but that could have been 5 or 6 of Villarreal because they, they cut open that defence at will sometimes. Um, you know, Antonio Rudiger's had a particularly bad game. and When I've seen him a couple of times this season for Real, he, he's, he doesn't seem to be the you know the dominant defender that we saw at Chelsea. He doesn't seem to adapt very well there at, at Real Madrid. So, um yeah, that that would concern me a little bit, and and maybe what they're proving, and what my United are proving, is that it was all down to Casemiro, and he was the glue holding all together. <laughs> and maybe that will prove to be the case. Maybe so, maybe so. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, Barcelona. You would say they're in the driving seat now. Do you think they can uh, they can hold their nerve for the rest of the rest of the season, Matt, and really go on and clinch this title, or are we going to see a few more twists and turns? your instinct telling you yeah i would say twists and turns yeah. that would that would be what my instinct is telling me just not based off a huge amount but basically based off that we haven't seen them put together and you know an insanely strong run um a title winning charge in the last few years so yeah i'm not really certainly convinced um the one thing i would say is that i don't think too many other teams are providing the level of opposition that we've seen in recent years i think it was last season um we saw Sevilla kind of close-ish to the title race towards the end of the season. And aside from the Clasico, you thought, right, that's also a tough game. Atletico Madrid, mm. also a tough game. Um, but there doesn't seem to be too many of these games outside of the obvious ones that I think could trouble them. So maybe, but that could just be absolute shite that I'm talking and we could see them lose to, you know, bottom of the league. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I won't, I, won't, I, won't, uh, I won't die on any hills as, as far as it goes to... Um, <laughs> predict Barcelona's season uh, but obviously they'd rather be in this position than not be in this position so they're, they're in a, they're in a pretty good space at the minute I guess yep certainly are I wanted to touch on a, uh, a story that broke this week uh, now with uh, Roberto Martinez landing the Portugal job having uh, having left Belgium after the World Cup of course um, my question on this John is how does he do it is this a case of him of him failing upwards or is that a bit harsh on uh, old Bobby Brown's shoes I think it's the brown shoes, isn't it? It's the only explanation <laughs> right now that seems to make sense. I mean, it's it's incredible, isn't it? And in terms of what he, I mean, he does get Belgium to the semi-finals of the the World Cup in um, twenty eighteen, doesn't he? So I guess we can't overlook that in terms of what he's done. But it does feel like they they didn't achieve what they, that team should have achieved, really, because you know the, the quality of players they had in that squad that they feel like Belgium really should have. Should have you know, should have a trophy in the cabinet and, and they don't and, and I do wonder how much that was down, you know, to the manager and and the, the thing is he's going from one golden generation to possibly another because you know you, you there's a um, one the one the uh, sort of Twitter feeds today a post the other day where it was basically produced four starting levers that Portugal could produce. And um, it was every single one was just full of ballers and full of like incredible players. And you're just thinking, Jesus Christ, how would you fit all these into a team? And, and you know, is Roberto Martinez the man who's going to put them all together? And the fingers of him, I'm, I'm not quite sure what teams and nations see it, seeing him because... You know, he did okay at Wigan, kept them in the Premier League when you know and and you know did well there. Deserves credit for that. Had won the FA Cup as well. And, to be fair, yeah, 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 and we all remember that game, don't we? Uh, ben Watson, <laughs> we certainly but, do. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, what he did at Everton is you know he did well for one season and then it, that plummeted very very quickly. But that is Everton. Um, but yeah, I, I, since then, I, I'm I'm not quite sure we're seeing what. You know, you know what the quality that Marseille brings to a team, but this is why we're not paid for those decisions and Belgium, Portugal FAs are, I guess. Yeah. How do you rate the job that he did at Belgium overall, Matt? I mean, he got them to the uh, the semi final in 2018. Was that was that a, a significant achievement or kind of par for the course considering the the, the talent at his disposal? I I think that was pretty 
you can look at it both ways, to be honest. I think from a history perspective, and that's what everyone always leans on in international tournaments, right? Regardless of which team they've got, everyone always pulls the same names out of the hat when you talk about favourites, you know, Brazil, Argentina, France, England, this, that and the other. Um, so from that perspective, he did do well. But yeah, you're right. When you look at the quality that he's got, Belgium did did pretty good. I, it's really interesting. There's all this talk of the fallout of Vertonghen and De Bruyne seemingly taking shots at each other in the press conferences. You know, we're too old. We're not going to win it. And Vertonghen <laughs> saying, oh, we're too old to attack now. Um, <laughs> you know, though the, the, that seems a little bit odd. And I can't help but feel that that's not really Martinez's fault. That's not really what he... Uh, built in terms of in terms of a team unit, I think there is a lot of uh, a lot of teamwork to be done at Portugal. Basically, post Ronaldo, I think it's really interesting to see that Ronaldo hasn't retired from international football. Obviously, still thinks he can contribute something to Portugal, and there might have been this. Um, I guess stick to beat Fernando uh, is Fernando Santos, right? The the former Portugal coach. Mm-hmm. The, the stick to beat him with might have been his loyalty to Ronaldo after so many years of playing him and so many years of working together. And I think bringing someone like Martinez in is basically saying clean slate. You can get rid of the egos. You owe Ronaldo absolutely nothing. Can you build us a cohesive team unit like we saw at Belgium in the beginning? Not so much at the end. And like Joel said, I think with the players that they've got. If they put together a sort of less ego-driven, less Ronaldo-centric team using all the talent that they've got, they could be something really, really special. As for Roberto Martinez being the best option, I don't know. Maybe he's just sort of, you know, pigeonholed himself as, as an international manager now. I mean, there are so many brilliant managers out there who are club managers. But who's going to stick around, you know, to be the Portugal manager or to be any sort of international manager? I mean, I couldn't think of anyone... I couldn't think of anyone else they could have got, really. I think Roberto Martinez is pretty qualified for the job. Um, yeah, I, I literally was just racking my brain. Jose yeah. Mourinho was one talked about, obviously busy at Roma. Um, I thought Zidane was going to get the French job, but Deschamps extended. All the, all the top guys are still at club level, so I couldn't mm. I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head who's better. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that Mourinho was apparently offered the Brazil job and has turned that down because he's in a good place with Roma, I guess, and doesn't want to, you know, abandon his job there just yet. And I wonder if international football is just not very attractive to to the top coaches. And you know, yeah, you would think the Portugal job yeah. would be tailor made for Mourinho, but um, maybe he was approached and said no to that one as well. And uh, yeah, Roberto Martinez has been uh, has been a very lucky boy to be basically <laughs> the only guy available. Yeah, fair play to him. Let's uh, let's touch now on the uh, EFL Cup action this week, specifically Southampton's 2-0 victory over Manchester City on Wednesday night. Uh, Manchester City absolutely fucking dreadful in this game, to be quite honest with you. It was a, it was a horrible watch for many reasons, principally the fact that the, uh, the, the TV uh, pitchers gave us a horrible kit clash with City wearing that fluorescent yellow kit combined with Southampton's white shirts. It just didn't work at all and it was hard to tell. Uh, who was playing for who at one point. Uh, Pep Guardiola was saying after the game uh, that he knew City were going to play badly before the game. He had, he had a, a premonition. Uh, I wish he'd revealed that information before the game because I might not have watched it and <laughs> gone to the cinema instead or something like that. It, that was a, a waste of my evening. But uh, a great performance from Southampton. Really impressed with them by their desire and the way they played, really. Do you think this will uh, this will kickstart the Nathan Jones era for them, Joel? They've, uh, they've, not, they've had a pretty rough time of it under him so far, but uh, looks very good here. Yeah, it, it might well do. Because the thing is, I, I for one, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this, kind of wrote Southampton off after the first game back after the World Cup, and they, and they get um, dismantled by Brighton, and, and then I'm looking at the team and thinking, it's a team that will do well in the Championship, and they brought a lot of young players in the summer. Uh, it looks like a team that is built to storm the Championship next season and come back up and then we, we go again type of thing. It, it didn't look like a team that was ready for Premier League survival um, right now, but we, maybe we'd be proven wrong because that, that performance that you put against you know, the Champions was was incredible. You know, there was desire there, there was you know, a bit of grit and you know, that little bit of quality, which you know, um, Mara brings the first goal and then Musa Gineppo brings the second goal, although... I do think the the goalkeeper is you know having a bit of a nightmare there. To be honest with you, I'm not quite sure where he thinks his goal is. But um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm fair play to Nathan Jones because 
he's been getting a lot of stick from his own fans, but also from anywhere elsewhere as well, because, you know, you can tell when he does his interviews at the moment that he is, you know, a bit rattled by this and, and completely <laughs> fair. Um, he, he put a quote out last night where he said, I don't know who he was referencing, but he said he was getting abuse from a non-league manager and he was, and he was like, well, that, that shut him up, didn't it? And I'm not quite sure who he was referring to, but, uh, but fair play to him. If he's uh, just going to get keep the Saints up by just completely calling everyone out on press conferences and, and going for scraps and to fair play to him because, yeah, I think that's probably the way to do it. And, you know, hopefully they can take that, you know, that performance against Man City into the weekend and, and do their job. I'm not quite sure who they're playing. Oh, it's Everton. So uh, let's hope they can uh, carry on, <laughs> on the weekend, mate. Yeah, what did he say? He's going to stay up till 3 a.m. watching videos of Everton or something, was it? Yeah, we've all done that and, and not had fun <laughs> doing it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> you do. <laughs> and the, uh, the draw for the semi-final has been made for the uh, the Carabao Cup, Matt. Uh, we've got uh, we've got Man United v Nottingham Forest and Newcastle v Southampton. Uh, are we are we looking at a Man United-Newcastle final there, would you say? That would be a, that'd be a pretty good final, I think, if so. Yeah, be a good final. I think that's really interesting. Apart from Man United, it's just you know, we've all seen them win a million things. Um, <laughs> that would be really interesting. The fact that you know Newcastle, Southampton, or Forest could be in the final, I think that'd be really cool. I'd 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 enjoy that a lot. Do, do um do United allow Dean Henderson to play? Is he on loan or they bought him? Yeah, he can't. Play. He's on loan he's and he can't play. Ah. Ah, oh, that's just okay. Well, then maybe I think United probably have more of a chance of getting through because Henderson was brilliant against Wolves. Um, obviously, the penalty shootout, but throughout the game as well. Ah, um, oh, that's a real shame for them. But yeah, I think Southampton or, or Newcastle both exciting to see either one of them in the final. And yeah, like you said, that there's always that cliche of being out of the cups helps you focus on the league, right? For Nathan Jones and getting out of a relegation battle, but. He had four four losses out of four in the league, and now it's two wins from two in the FA Cup and League Cup in the last couple of days. So maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the Cup's a good distraction for him. Maybe <laughs> it'll buy him a bit more time if he gets to a League Cup final, um, you know, and the league form still still goes to pot. But yeah, they, they got Everton at the weekend, so maybe they've actually got a chance of picking up some league points for the first time ever. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, we'll stay on the subject of Manchester City and Manchester United. We have the uh, the Manchester Derby coming up from Old Trafford on Saturday lunchtime this week. We've had a question in from David Aslan on the emails. Reminder that the email address is podcast at wolffootball.com if you want to get a question in for a future show. Uh, David asks, how do you reckon the Derby will go? Will it be another high scoring game from with City winning by a goal or three? Or do Man United have what it takes to grind out a result at Old Trafford? Uh, I should say that he sent that question in before City uh, shut the bed against Southampton on Wednesday so uh, maybe the the perspective has changed on that mine certainly has Joel uh, what do you reckon how do you see this one going it's really curious because the Manchester derbies you know for the last five six years especially in the Guardiola have been sort of non-events in terms of City show up killed them and United in terms of what you just use shit the bed themselves and, and, and don't mm. seem to offer anything this one seems the first derby in a long time where you know I wouldn't say the, the, the quality of the teams on level or or even close to that city are, in my opinion miles away but the better team but in terms of form and in terms of giving a bit of hope United fans will go into this thinking they might be able to do one over City this time um, I think it's curious from that perspective because United do deserve credit for the form they've been in recently Um you know, before the World Cup and, and since you know, they come back they do deserve a lot of credit Marcus Rashford is in, in you know, form his life. But this is the first, I think, real big test they've had since Ten Hag has turned the ship around, should we say. You know, they, they've been beating teams that, you know, in, in all due respect, they should be beating. Um, you know, let's you know, let's not overlook the fact they did beat Liverpool when Liverpool were in bad form and they did obviously beat Spurs, which, which is probably their best performance of the season. But this is, a you know, a whole new level now when it comes to City. I think this is the, the first test in a long time and, and I think it's going to be a Assess their credentials, and and you know what, you know, I wouldn't be completely surprised if they do go and win on on Saturday. But um, this is this is it now. This is this is a you know, let's see how far my United have come, and you know, I'm not not, not going to completely rule them out. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it does go, but um, if City do turn them over, I'd completely swing back to the fact that I think they'll go on and win the title now. Like they need a, a turn in decisive results in their season because it's been a bit. You know, stuttery recently. Um, if they go and win on, on Saturday, I think this is where they start their run, where they go and win 14 games in a row and kill everyone's hope of, uh, of Premier League football. 
<laughs> or they completely fall off a cliff and uh, yeah, end up finishing fifth. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you sort of look at look at recent derby games. Uh, the, the one at Old Trafford last season, City got the noses in front pretty early and then just kept the ball for basically the rest of the game. It felt like they ended up with about 70% possession at Old Trafford. At the Etihad last season, uh, Ralph Rangnick's United gave City the freedom of the midfield and got punished. It was a similar story in the 6-3 this season with, with Eric Tanhag. You know, United just, just getting dominated midfield. Do you think the signing of Casemiro is going to change that this time around, Matt? Is he going to help United get control of the game a little bit better? Uh, well, you'd assume so, given his skill set and the task that he'll probably be given. Yeah, you, you would think that Casemiro would be the difference. But I think for United to go into the game thinking that their key man is the defensive option in midfield might be a little bit too negative. I'm not saying they should take the game to City, but there also needs to be a focus on what they can do going forward. I think Ericsson has been a brilliant signing. Rashford's in the form of his life. Um, so yeah, it, it, Casemiro obviously has his role to play, but I think they also need to look about how they can you know, go forward and do some damage and not just spend 90 minutes hoping that City don't run through them like they did, um, like they did at the Etihad earlier in the season. I really think that there's probably, it's a little bit more even, actually, uh, given that it's at home than, than I would have thought. I definitely, uh, like David David mentioned earlier, I wouldn't go for a crazy high-scoring game. City still have the chance of nicking it. Um, but yeah, there, there certainly seems to be a little bit more balance. I think the form of the front three, certainly for United, is definitely going to cause City a few problems at the back, especially when you look at how easily Southampton got in um, you know, in the in the game last night. So, yeah, Casemiro will be will be an important part of the game, but I don't think he is, he's going to be everything. I don't think they can just break up play for ninety minutes. That would be a bit too negative of them, especially at home. Yeah, yeah. Well, United are on an eight match winning streak going into this game in all competitions. Uh, if they win against City on uh, Saturday, they will be just a point behind City and uh, six points behind Arsenal. We talked about their title credentials a couple of weeks ago and pretty much dismissed it and said they, they're not in a title race. But if they win this game, are they in a title race, Joel? Do we have to say that? Yeah, I think you do. Um, <laughs> if they get that close to Arsenal, I, I think you do. And in, in the form that they, they, they are in currently, um, I'm not too. 100% sure if it's completely sustainable, but in terms of what they're showing right here, right now, I think you'd have to consider them um, to be in there. I, I still think they are missing something in attack, whether that course is that missing link, well, well, I guess we're going to find out. But um, <laughs> I, I do, I just think there's something, I, I, it's just something not quite completely there with, with this team. And I'm, I'm not going to completely dismiss the form that they're in or what Ten Hag has done because it does deserve credit, especially from where, where they were when they got beat by Brentford, uh, you know, second game of the season. They all deserve credit for what they've done there. But I think in terms of, you know, let's say they're on the same level as Man City and off Liverpool of last season, I don't think they're there quite yet. But in terms of, you know, what's working for them this season. Maybe it's just one of these mad Premier League seasons where, you know, a Leicester wins the league. Obviously, they're <laughs> not that. But, uh, you know, maybe maybe they can just put this, keep this run form going and keep riding the wave and, and find they find themselves in March and April and, and they're right up there again. And, and you know, I mean, I, I would absolutely hate it, but uh, <laughs> it could well happen. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that about Arsenal, not that they're, you know on Leicester's level necessarily but it was a similar story last year where everyone was like oh they're not going to keep it up they'll fall off eventually and they won the league with like nine, with 79 points or something I think it was or maybe 82 points like it might only require that kind of points total to win the league this year if mm-hmm. uh, if City don't get their act together and if, if United aren't strong enough this year then Arsenal might may not need uh, that many points to win it. Let's have a, a quick prediction on the uh, the Manchester derby from you. I'll come to you first, Mark, because you said last week that you couldn't see City winning at Stamford Bridge and then City did win at Stamford Bridge. So I'm hoping you're going to say that you, could, you can't see City winning at Old Trafford either and, and give me a bit of confidence. <laughs> yeah, I can't see them winning at Old Trafford. Uh, <laughs> I'll, go for a, I'll, go for a, I'll go for an exciting two-all. For you, Joel? I think exactly the same. Yeah, two-two. I'll go for two-two as well then. And uh, yeah, it would be such a disastrous around. result. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Desmond's all around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we've got another massive derby uh, coming uh, on Sunday as well from North London. Uh, Arsenal taking on Tottenham at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, the home team tends to win these derbies, Matt. Does that give you strength going into this one? Is it Have Tottenham got this in the bag or is it going to be different this time around? 
Honestly, I am always confident at a home North London derby. The home team win, the away team just, you know, like we've talked about before, don't have the bottle to go to the, you know, the other other part of North London to win. However, having said that, this time around, I am very, very nervous. I think every, not because I think Tottenham are in a bad place. I think, you know, they'll put in a good performance. But every test that Arsenal have had this season, they've come through it. There's been big away wins at Chelsea. There's been... Um, you know, going down at home and then turning things around. There's been nitty gritty games away from home. They've won every sort of um, uh, title winning test that you get put through a season. They've checked it off one by one. They've hit every single note and going to your biggest rivals home pitch and winning is one of one of the biggest checklists, uh, checkpoints on that list. And it's something I think they could potentially do. They're in such good form. Um, and I really, I really am worried, to be honest with you, um, for the first time in quite a long time, because like I said before, it was in the bag. It was in the bag for the home team. I had no hope going to the Emirates and I gave Arsenal <laughs> no chance coming to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, um, where I think they've lost every, every time they've come there in the league. But it was a bit of a draw. No, I don't think so. I think they've lost every single one. So, yeah, I, I'm honestly petrified, to be honest, <laughs> um, at the thought of I am going. I will be there. Um, so if you see me sobbing on TV, um, just there was a fly in my eye. And that's what <laughs> <happened>. <laughs> should he be worried about this? Do you think? Uh, do you think Joel and uh, you know Arsenal? They, they've passed a lot of tests this season. Every time they've they've come up against a, a good opponent, I've thought, oh, they might struggle here, and they've they've sailed through it. Usually, is is this arguably the biggest test yet? Like a you know, given that the record in this in this fixture, a hump that they need to overcome. I think so. Uh, I think, you know, Matt put it there in terms of they've checked off every test. I, I think if, if you, if you see Arsenal win this, I, I think you'll see celebrations at the end that where, um, they'll, this sounds RC, but it doesn't mean it. I think they'll celebrate like they've won the league. And I, I don't mm. mean that in a, in a, you know, a, a dickhead way. I mean, it'll feel massive. It'll feel like a big hurdle's overcome. And, you know, I'm pretty sure they have the belief that they can, challenge for the title anyway but if they go on and win at Spurs and, and get over that sort of uh, I guess a little voodoo's, voodoo's come, on, uh, come on them a little bit when it goes to that stadium um, then that will feel momentous and it might just give them the full belief that they can go on and, and, and win the league uh, and then obviously they'll know the results of the, the Manchester Derby when that happens as well so that could come into it as well um, now I sort of think about it now I'm getting asked about the result, results there is just my gut is telling me that Spurs might have one in the bag here. Like, just might have a little hand to play. Um, we've not seen Kane and Son work together quite well as well as they have done in the past this season. And I think that they are due a performance together. And I just feel Arsenal are very, very, you know, attacking, play on the front for and and, you know, do leave a bit of space in behind them. And that is kind of what Antonio Conte wants from his opposition. Spurs have struggled when teams are coming and play dead a little bit. You've got a team that's coming to the stadium that wants to engage in the game and and sort of leave gaps that could play in Spurs' favour. And I saw that uh, Kuliszewski's back in training as well. That could come into it. I'm starting to feel Spurs might just uh, (laughs) land a bit of a blow on Arsenal, you know. Go on then, let's have a score prediction from you then. And we go 2-1 Spurs. Oof. Does that, has that has that filled you with any more confidence, Matt? It has a bit. You should come to the game <laughs> with me, Joel. Yeah. Do the team the talk. Beforehand. But, yeah, yeah, bloody hell. Better than any bottle of whiskey could. Um, I, I that, that would be like the generic sort of home victory score, right? 2-1, 2-1 to, to Tottenham. I probably put a one-all on it because I am quite wary of Arsenal, but Kuliszewski being back is massive for Spurs. Um yeah, my my head says one all, but my heart says two one to Spurs just to nick it. <laughs> I'll go for another two two then. Another Desmond. Desmond's all round. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, quick word. I, I almost moved past without uh, without mentioning him here, but the uh, the, the Valt Ved cost uh, Manchester United transfer. A uh, bit of a bizarre one, Joel, or is it uh, is it a shrewd move? Um, I, w- I was thinking it might be the new Odi Nagalo, and um, when I typed Odi Nagalo's name into the uh, notes app on my laptop earlier, it uh, auto corrected to Onion Inhale, which I thought was quite interesting. But um, <laughs> don't know what to make of that, really. But yeah, Valve like Course, a, what do you reckon? Onion Inhale feels like an indie band from the the early noughties, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I would have gone to see them, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, obviously, obviously it is a weird one because you know you look on on 
sort of the face of it, he plays for Burnley last season and you know doesn't really pull up any trees playing for Burnley. But I guess that was for a team that didn't create that many chances and expect him to play in a, in a different way that he's going to play at Old Trafford. Um, I, I think it, it feels it's got all the remnants of a sort of Eric Ten Hag signing. Um, like I'm pretty sure he's, you know, obviously does recruitment team and plays United like there is at every club. I feel like this is definitely one that Ten Hag has pointed out some, and wanted. And um, you know, he has sort of talked about having a, a main focal point striker in, in the press recently um, to sort of play around his sort of fast and nippy wingers he has and also to bring Fernandez into the game. So it's, you know, it's interesting to see what he'll do, and I, and I think it's maybe could could prove to be a shrewd move. Uh, obviously, the only time will tell. But I think what will prove to be a shrewd move is I don't think he's going to go and score fifteen goals between now and the end of the season. But what he might do is just instead of the way Olivier Giroud brings Griezmann and Mbappe into playing for France, he could do that kind of job for, mm. for United, and um, that, I think that's what they're intending anyway. But uh, we'll, we'll have to see, won't we? We certainly will. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's finish today by uh, by paying tribute to a uh, a great footballer who hung up his boots this week. Gareth Bale announced his retirement at the age of thirty three. Um, a player who I'm sure is close to your heart for his uh, his time at Spurs, Matt. Um, you know, a lot of talk about whether he's Britain's greatest ever footballer. I think there's a few uh, claims to that throne, but is it fair to say he's great uh, Britain's greatest ever export, having won five Champions Leagues with Real Madrid? Yeah, that's that's pretty much undisputable. Um... Going abroad to, to Spain and doing what he did in the in the nine years that he was there, uh, I always think it's funny. He's Britain's greatest export when we talk about our great years, but if he was rubbish, he'd be Welsh. <laughs> it's the same thing with Tin Henman. Yeah. When he wins, he's British. When he loses, he's Scottish. Um, <laughs> Andy Murray, even. Andy Murray, even not Tin Henman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Andy Murray. That was it. Um, yeah, he's absolutely brilliant. I feel it's a real shame that that he's obviously decided to retire so early. But I guess no offense, but once you move to MLS. There's not really much coming back unless you're Zlatan somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and he obviously only spent a few months at, at LFC, won them won them a support shield. And then it's a pretty decent end to his career. I wouldn't be surprised if we see him on the PGA Tour anytime soon. To be <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, could, could live the double dream as a professional footballer and golfer. But some of the most unbelievable football I've ever seen at Tottenham was in that 2010-11 team with Bale and with Luka Modric as well. And, my God, yeah, I was there that night at the San Siro when he scored a hat-trick against Inter Milan. Um, and I came out the stadium, firstly, feeling like we'd won, even though we'd actually lost. We'd get absolutely <laughs> nothing from it. But really, everyone sort of had the sense that you're witnessing history here. It was like, this is this is ridiculous. Like, this kid's absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, I think it was 21 at the time. 21 years old to just sort of make a mockery of so many players. It was, it was every single week in that Harry Redknapp team. I was like, Bale's going to do something. And then under Andre Villas-Boas as well, the season before he moved to Real Madrid, it was just, it, it was mind blowing to see one player have that much of an effect. He was arguably a better one man team than Kane is making Tottenham at the minute. Right. Everyone says, oh, your one man team, Kane carries him. Not like Bale did in that year. I think 21 league goals. It might have been the year before he moved. Uh, his final year at Spurs, it was just, it was crazy. It was just sort of picking up the ball, running past everyone and scoring like on the playground. So yeah. really, uh, really sad to see him retiring, but it's one of my favourite footballers of all time. And it it sort of made me a Real Madrid fan <laughs> just because he was there. I just wanted to see him do so well. You know, it was so exciting to watch Bale win, win trophies and have such a glittering career. So yeah, I'll, he'll always hold a special place in my heart. Yeah. Yeah, he was signed from Southampton as a left back as well, wasn't he? Lest we forget, and had that that weird uh, record for a long time where Spurs every time he played, Spurs lost, and then overcame that and blossomed into this this great player. Went on to uh, break the the world transfer record when he moved to Real Madrid, winning all those Champions Leagues, being Wales's greatest ever player. Um, in many ways, Joel, it's a it's a dream career, but yeah, he he got a lot of criticism during his career, especially from the the media in Spain um, for. You know, perhaps some of the way that he conducted himself during his time at Real Madrid wasn't great at times. Was that um, was that a bit harsh on him? Do you think? A little bit. I, th- I think with Real Madrid, they they they're, just, they're a bit strange with the way they approach their, their club legends and um, and players in terms of 
you know, the, the media seems to have it out for players very quickly and very easily. Uh, not only the players who, who move from other countries, but the Spanish players. You know, uh, Ike Casillas had a sort of the same kind of treatment towards the end of his career. Raul a little bit um, as as well. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, don't, I wouldn't look too much into that. I, I don't think he really cared about that too much either, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, although I think he kind of had them, had them sort of their pants down a bit because... I think he sort of acted like he couldn't speak Spanish that fluently um, <laughs> while he was over there. And when he signs for you know for uh, the club in MLS and they ask him to do an interview in Spanish, he does it very perfectly. So uh, I, I appreciate the the uh, the commitment to the bit. Um, but Matt, Matt summed him up perfectly, and I think the only thing I'll add to that is I think he scored the the best ever Champions League final goal as well. Um, everyone always remembers that game against Liverpool. For what Loris Carrius being a melon, but I think <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I, I kind of wish that game ended two one, and that was the decisive winning goal because it deserved to be the winning, the decisive winning goal. It was, you know, it tops the down score against Leverkusen for for me personally, and um, for him just to do that, and then just you know that that game is completely even at the time, and then he comes on, just pulls that out the back, the red kick, and you're just like, what are you meant to do? That's incredible. That that's not. A normal footballer doing that, um, and yeah, what a career for him! Uh, sad to see him, you know, retire sadly. Yep. Well, uh, yeah. Good luck to him in his uh, his golfing career. Uh, for, for what's left of it <laughs> uh, yeah that will do us for today uh, thank you to Matt and Joel for joining me thanks to everyone for listening um, enjoy the football this weekend we'll be back next week uh, the three of us will be watching from behind the sofa but uh, yeah it should be uh, it should be a fun weekend so enjoy it I love you.